Hello, readers. Matthew Schwartz is an award-winning investigative reporter who has spent four decades breaking stories on TV stations across the country, and he's just published a book on his life in the business, Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. Matthew, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you, Trey? Doing very well. So, Matthew, you knew your professional destiny at the age of 15. What led to this epiphany? I didn't want to go to college for eight years to be a lawyer. And I didn't want to be a gym teacher because I just want to make more money, frankly. I love sports and I love the law. And then I met a neighbor, Jim Donnelly, who was a very well-known morning drive anchor on WCBS radio in New York City, all news radio. Met him through my father. He was a friend of my father's a client. My father sold insurance and he was one of his clients. So I started going to work with Jim Donnelly at 2.30 in the morning. I would be at his house. Parents would drive me over because he was the morning drive anchor. As I said, he was on from 5 to 9 a.m. And I just loved everything about it. I got a rush from all news radio and the chaos and performing well under pressure. And just the whole thing excited me. And then I went to journalism school at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. And I got involved in the radio station there and the TV station and the daily newspaper. And from then on, that really got me started. Now, it wasn't until 1992 that your boss moved you into the investigative unit. What did your career consist of prior to that, and what was your fondest memory of the job up to that point? After I started at WCBS Radio as a desk assistant, I thought I should try TV. This was 1977, after a year out of college, and I did the minor leagues of TV. I did two years each in Utica, New York, upstate New York, (laughs) Cleveland, Ohio, and Richmond, Virginia, in the order of Utica, Richmond, Cleveland. And uh, I always wanted to get back on the air in New York. So I was a general assignment reporter, an anchor, fill-in doing sports, everything, but mostly a general assignment reporter, kind of specializing in crime. And I wanted to get back to New York City Like a lot of reporters do, Trey, they want to get back to the big city near where they grew up. I suspect a lot of people in Texas may want to get back to Dallas or Houston, depending on where they grew up. So my first day at work in New York City was exactly my 30th birthday. I got a call in Cleveland from my mother, and this is in the book, saying your father has been given six months to live. He has cancer. So I told my agent to put the pedal to the metal. And I got to New York, and my father got to watch me on TV there the last seven months of his life. So that was great timing as far as the career goes. Said about my dad, he passed at 74. But that was a thrill for him, and I was grateful. But I was getting burned out of being a reporter after 10 years in New York City of covering everything. Crime, du jour, every night, live reports, most nights. And then on April 1st, 1992, as you mentioned, the news director called me in and said, I'm adding people to the investigative unit, and you're one of them. And that really changed the course of my career in a great way. Now, I'm not sure if these next two things that I'm going to ask about were before or after you got moved to the investigative unit. I'm assuming before, but you got to interview a couple of pretty famous people, including the great Dizzy Gillespie. How'd that one go? I did a series before I was an investigative reporter, And we did a series called Sinatra to Springsteen about famous musicians who lived in New Jersey. Some didn't grow up there, but they all lived there for a good portion of their lives. And Dizzy Gillespie lived 
not far from me in Bergen County, New Jersey, in a town called Englewood, not far from New York City, a suburb of the city. And I uh, called him to set up the interview, and he asked me to drive him to the station in New York because he said he had a recording session after that. So I went over his house, picked him up. He had a 20-foot-long gold trumpet on his lawn. This is one of the great trumpet players of all time. It's not the greatest jazz trumpet player. I picked him up, and on the way to the interview, he asked me if I wanted to smoke a joint with him. (laughs) Now, remember, this is 1985, and I'm on the job, my dream job, and I'm driving down the uh, West Side Highway, which is the main connecting road from the George Washington Bridge into Midtown Manhattan. And I'm like, excuse me, what did you say? It might seem tame now, and musicians getting high is certainly not news. But when you're a 30-year-old reporter at your dream job and this famous person asks you if you want to get high, it threw me off a bit. And I said, well, (laughs) I can't do it on the job, man. I don't want to get fired. I could see the headlines, you know, famous jazz trumpet player busted, reporter fired. (laughs) So uh, I begged off. And just halfway in the trip, he goes, hey, Matt, you want to smoke a doobie? I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) You know, I just thought it was a little strange considering he didn't know me from a hole in the wall. And... That's what I'll remember about Dizzy. And I never told the story till it was in the book. And it didn't make the piece because that's not relevant, really. Of course. What led to you scoring an interview with the piano man himself, Billy Joel? Yeah, that was a great story. So I was going to the Hamptons, the affluent part of Long Island, very affluent summer homes, you know, big hangout for the wealthy in the summer. And the story was that the economy was faltering and they're not renting houses and how are the businesses doing? And I was worried the story might be a little dry. So I get to the realtor's office. I tell my photographer, go get some shots, please, of the marina, some beauty shots while I do a little pre-interview with this realtor, our first interview. When the news van left, I'm taking some notes about other businesses. I might want to go in and ask the owners how they're doing in this downturn. And on the way out there, my photographer, who coincidentally rented a house with several buddies, in the Hampton said, you know, Billy Joel's favorite restaurant is right across the street from this realtor's office. Well, Trey, this was mid-March, chilly, low season. And after my cameraman is getting some shots at the marina within 10 minutes, and I'm getting chilly, so I'm going to get go in and sit in the realtor's office. Who comes out of a silver Mercedes by himself but Billy Joel? He's walking right towards me. No entourage, nothing. I heard he's a down-to-earth guy, and he proved that because I asked him if he would do an interview with me. I told him what the story's about. He goes, man, I look kind of scruffy. I don't know. I said, ah, you look fine. He said, okay. He was like really fast. But now my cameraman's not there, okay? So I think I had a walkie-talkie. This is before cell phones. Mm -hmm. And I get on there. I say, Todd, that's my photographer. Billy Joel's here with me. And he goes, yeah, right. I go, no, he really is. He didn't believe me. And then he comes down, and we did a great interview with Billy Joel. I remember calling the newsroom, and they thought I was kidding also. I undersold it. I said, the story has gotten pretty good. We just interviewed Billy Joel. And I hear the assignment editor screen out, Matt just got Billy Joel. I schmoozed with him, Trey, to stall while my cameraman was still a few minutes away by saying I had seen him in concert three times, twice solo, and once he was with Elton John. So... I kind of reminisced about those shows to kind of stall so he wouldn't want to leave. But he was really a good down-to-earth guy. Did he go to that restaurant after he was done with the interview? He did. Hmm. He did. And I had told my photog on the way out. That's a good follow-up question, Trey. I said, 
yeah, right. What are the odds, you know? And he did go in there. He's just a regular there, I guess. Thank you to your camera guy for the assist there. That's great. Mm -hmm. So if people didn't know you in the New York City area before 2002, they did after 2002 because you interviewed Son of Sam just prior to his parole hearing that year. One, how did you end up scoring such a massive interview? And then two, nearly 20 years later, what resonates in your mind from the hour plus that you spent with David Berkowitz? I knew that his parole hearing was coming up because I read it in the newspaper. In New York State, as in many states, you have to get a parole hearing every certain number of years. And at 25 years, considering he had six 25-year life sentences, he had to, by law, have a parole hearing. No chance of him getting out. He killed six people. He shot 13. So I thought, well, we have nothing to lose. Maybe I want to say something. Then I saw he wrote a letter to Governor Pataki, and then I thought he really might want to say something now. So my producer, Ethan Drylinger, went up to the prison. It was about three hours or so from the TV station, and he talked to him without a camera. And then Berkwood said, I wanted some assurances from Matt. That's not going to be sensational, and you're just going to let me say my piece, and it won't be like a tabloid-style interview. So I became pen pals with Berkowitz, who used to work for the post office, for several weeks. And then we did the interview. It is one of the biggest, as we call it in the TV business, one of the biggest gets that I've ever had. He hadn't talked for a while on TV. And it was weird when he came into the room. I've interviewed a lot of killers, criminals, but just to shake the hand that held that 44 caliber gun and shot 13 people was, it was a strange feeling. And the scary thing was he looked like a million guys you'd see on the street except for the three-inch scar he had on his neck from getting stabbed by an inmate in 1979 in Attica State Prison, an inmate trying to make a name for himself. But as happy as that moment was for me journalistically, there was an incident that happened when I got back to the station that really is the focus of the first chapter of the book, where I was ordered by my boss to lie on TV about something that happened during that interview. And it blew my mind. And even though it wasn't the biggest lie ever to me, a lie is a lie and it hurts your credibility. And that piece is actually on Vimeo now and you could watch it. And it still pains me. I cringe every time I hear that line. That was a long piece too. It was over eight minutes long. And then at the bottom of the hour, we were on from 10 to 11. The station did another three and a half or so minutes of just Berkowitz in his own words with my questions, you know. But that led to my downfall at the station because I didn't want to go along with the lie, but I was forced to. I had three young kids and a big mortgage, and I just couldn't afford to refuse to say what the boss ordered me to say. What was the lie? Well, believe it or not, my pen was on the table between Berkowitz and me during the interview. And when I brought the footage back and they saw the interview, the three news managers, the news director said, were you nervous about him picking up your pen and stabbing you with it? And, well, first I thought he was joking. I said, no, the thought never entered my mind. This is 25 years after his crimes. He's been described by the warden in my pre-interview with him as a model inmate, a teddy bear. There's two guards, corrections officers, standing a few feet away. Not, it never entered my mind. So he told me to say it, and I walked out of that meeting not too happy. And then I screened the interview and wrote the script 
that occupied the next two days. I brought the script back, my final script, and he changed the line from me saying in the voiceover that I was afraid he might pick up my pen and stab me with it. He changed it to my producer was worried that Berkowitz might pick up my pen and stab me with it. Well, Trey, my producer was not even at the prison, and he wasn't even in the newsroom that day. His wife was about to give birth to their first child. So that's an outright lie. Like I said, I can't compare degrees of not telling the truth. A lie is a lie, and it really bothered me. And it just showed to me the type of sensationalism and tabloid style that the new news management at that time was becoming. It aired in May of 2002, and like I said, it is online now for anybody to watch. Sadly, the idea of yellow journalism has probably only gotten worse since then, not just in New York, but across the country. Now, this country has a major problem with prescription pills, Matthew, and unfortunately, some in the medical industry perpetuate the problem. What did your report for WFTS-TV uncover in 2008? I got a call from a mother when I, of a woman, young 21-year-old woman addicted to painkillers. She had been in an auto wreck and, like a lot of people, became addicted to painkillers. She was in an auto accident when she was about 16. The mother called me and said, there's a doctor in Tampa who is prescribing a ridiculous number of pills to people. And it wasn't her daughter. She had other people she knew of. And with no checkup, no records, no MRI, nothing, just you pay the cash, I'll give you the pills. And I could not believe that Florida at this time did not have any kind of drug monitoring system. You could just pharmacy hop. You know, you go from one to the other. So we dug up all the records of every single death in Hillsborough and the adjacent Pinellas County. Hillsborough is where Tampa is. And this doctor was the physician for seven people who died in that year of drug overdoses. Now, listen, he didn't put the pills in their mouth, but he certainly didn't tell them, no, you've had too many. And we got this young 21-year-old woman's customer history report from this doctor. And in one 31-day period, he prescribed her 810 oxycodones. Now, that's 26 a day with some left over. I showed the customer history report, redacting her name for her privacy to three physicians. One was a pharmacist and then two physicians, high-ranking in the state and different state agencies. And they said, that's a drug dealer right there. And you blame the legislature. And I wrote in the book, God forbid not one of these legislators' loved one had to die because it took them long enough to get a monitoring bill. And then a new monitoring where you can keep track of everybody's prescriptions and pharmacies will deny it because they see, wait, you just got a bunch of pills the other day. And I was really proud of that story. And not long after my report, that doctor, his office was raided and he faced the prospect of prison or giving up his license. A lot of people wanted him to go to prison, but he voluntarily, sort of voluntarily, if you know what I mean, (laughs) relinquished his medical license. And I confronted him one morning outside As I do a lot of bad guys, I have throughout my career. I just retired, actually, last Wednesday from full-time TV work after 44 years. But that doctor did stop practicing. He relinquished his license. Congratulations on forcing that, and congratulations also on a pretty incredible career, Matthew. And that included pro wrestler Hulk Hogan bawling his eyes out to you. Why did that happen? 
I interviewed Hulk Hogan because his son was in a terrible car accident when he was drag racing on a street in Clearwater, Florida, with his very good friend who ended up, unfortunately, with a severe brain injury. And to this day, the last I checked, he was in a vegetative state. But also Hulk's wife was about to divorce him. But they gave me the first and only interview before the kid, Nick Hogan, was going to uh, surrender to the authorities in Pinellas County. The night before he was going to surrender, I was at their house outside of Clearwater interviewing the entire family. And unbeknownst to them, Trey, somebody had handed me a tape, an old VHS tape. Now it's old, but then, you know, this is around 2000, 2001. It showed this tape called Vehicular Lunatics, showed the family, the mom, Linda Balea, and the daughter drag racing. And with Nick, an impressionable teenager then, alongside watching, in the video, in this documentary called Vehicular Lunatics, Linda Bollea said she loves drag racing. She loves dodging the cops, the thrill of it all, to that extent. Flash forward about five years when I'm in their house, after that video was made, they didn't know I had seen that video. So I said, we have this video. And she denied saying it. And she said, no, I never said that. So then I did what we call on TV, butting the sound bites together. When she denied herself saying it, we went right to the clip from a few years back from this DVD, Vehicular Lunatics, of her saying it. So she was caught red-handed. In fact, I remember the next morning I heard a few of the morning zoo radio programs were playing it and talking about it. Hmm. So after the interview now, which was kind of tense and awkward, you know, as we're packing up the gear, I had two cameramen with me on that shoot. And the lawyer for Hulk Hogan, I had done some stories with. He set up the interview. So now it's pitch black. We're outside to go back to the TV station. And Hulk comes up to me. He wasn't going to do anything in his house in front of his family and with the cameras on. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And I'm alone standing in front of his house. And he just breaks down crying. He said, I wish you hadn't asked that, but I get it. Like, he was pretty good about it. But he starts crying. He goes, man, my life is everything's going bad. You know, my son's in the wreck. My wife's divorcing me. And I can't believe this six foot eight, 300 something pound guy is just pouring his heart out, almost sobbing on my shoulder. I mean, he's really crying. And that was a weird scene, man. I tell you. Some of your favorite stories helped to stop animal abuse. And it's certainly understandable why you would love those stories the most. How does this include animals loaded as cargo on airplanes? Yeah, that was actually my producer in New York, Allison Gilbert. We had received several phone calls from people who had just taken plane trips and their dogs and cats either died or got seriously injured because of the way they were thoughtlessly treated in the airplane cargo holds where the temperatures would go easily over 100 degrees. And then there were scenes of the dogs or cats in their crate when reaching their destination and they'd be shade or a cool room nearby, but the cargo people would just throw the crates around and just let them sit on the tarmac or by the gate, I should say, but in the heat. We had some in Houston. We had some in Miami. Some of the pets died. Allison went undercover, and with the owner's permission, we had temperatures. We had thermometers attached to the crates, and it was a powerful story called Dying to Fly. Several interviews with people who had lost their dog or cat. And the late Senator Frank Lautenberg, he was a longtime New Jersey senator, 
passed away several years ago, but he saw this story around 1998 and he sponsored a bill that would make the airlines accountable and have to tell the public how many dogs and cat injuries and deaths they've had during each year. Until then, there was no reporting required. Now, if you're traveling with a pet and you want to find out, I want to know the safety records. I mean, for crying out loud, you can find out the records now of planes being late or not, how often they're on time, but you couldn't find out about a dog or cat. So he sponsored this bill. Eventually, President Clinton signed it, and it was really gratifying for me. I remember the old Montel Williams show had some investigative reporters on, and they invited me on. And I didn't like really doing media. I thought... My work should speak for itself when I was working, but my boss wanted me to go on and the show was real popular and it was on our station. I said, you know what? I want the public to know about this. And that was just a nice little uh, perk, but that's not why I did it. That's certainly not why I did it. I just remember that I used to always turn down media requests after certain big investigations. And another example of you helping out animals who obviously don't have a voice to speak up for themselves was at KVOA in Tucson, where you investigated the drugging of greyhounds that were bred for racing. What sort of response did this elicit from one of the dog's trainers when you confronted him about it? My first story in Tucson and one of my favorites in my seven plus years here. In 2013, the Tucson Greyhound Park was not liked by a lot of animal lovers because the greyhounds, as they were at a lot of greyhound tracks, were just not treated well. They lived in squalid conditions, the heat here in Tucson. So I got a tip from somebody, and I got records from the state to confirm her tip, about a trainer drugging his dog with a steroid to make him run faster. And I um, got the records because I didn't want to take it just from the tipster, I got the records from the state. They were identical to what she provided, the tipster, and it was the viewer. And I confronted the guy. He denied it. Then, only then, did I say, well, I have the records right here. He was standing outside his car during this interview. And he got in his car, and then he gave me the one-finger salute, not (laughs) telling me that I'm number one, and cursed me out, went with the accompanying words, and drove off. And that was all on camera. And in fact, that picture of him saluting me is on the cover of the book. Yes, it is. Uh, One of the pictures on the cover of Confessions of an Investigative Reporter, which, by the way, to my shock, hit number one on Kindle in the Kindle version the day after it was released. And it's still number one in the category biographies of journalists, the Kindle version on Amazon. So because I didn't write this book to really make money. Or have a bestseller. It was just the bucket list thing I wanted to do, Trey, you know, just to leave for my kids. I'm going to be 67 in October. I always wanted to write a book. So I just did it every day for a year. I got up early in the morning before I had to go to KVOA TV. And I just tried to write a page a day, which was some sage advice that another author had given me. Because I thought I can't write a book while I'm working full time. I have to work till I retire. I have to wait till I retire. Yeah, congratulations. You accomplished that for sure. And speaking of your time in Arizona, Matt, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders don't have much in common, but they are similarly crooked with regard to the Tucson Police Department. How so? They held rallies here in 2016. In fact, a day apart in March of 2016 at the Tucson Convention Center. And their rallies required a lot of extra police to keep the peace 
and they worked overtime and they did not pay the city after they left. They stiffed the city, which is a financially strapped city, about the fifth poorest city in the country, Tucson. And they're short police officers. Now, this may sound like not a lot of money to a lot of people in bigger cities. It was $126,000 total. Donald Trump owes the city over 81000 and Bernie Sanders over 44000 But as one councilman I interviewed for that story said, 126000 could hire three cops here. And this is a city where they're short cops. So that really struck a note with the public when I did those pieces. And I hammered on those pieces. I did three or four of them. And finally, city council adopted a law requiring an upfront payment from the candidates. As one councilman said to me, you can't just come use our facilities and our police and then just stiff us. Turned out that they had both done that in other cities and the Center for Public Integrity did a study. I think that I'm getting the name of the agency correct. They did a study over many rallies held by President Trump and he owed over $840,000 to about a dozen cities total. So Tucson was one that was stiffed by the Trump campaign. And the Sanders campaign stiffed several. In fact, the only person we saw who paid, and it was one event at a high school, was Hillary Clinton, where Bill appeared for her. Hmm. Former President Clinton appeared for his wife. And that was about a $6,000 bill. And I got the invoices to show the receipts. They did pay that. But Sanders and Trump stiffed a lot of cities. College Hoops was rocked by a corruption scandal two years ago. University of Arizona assistant coach Book Richardson was one of the guys who ended up in jail as a result. You gained an interview with him days before he went to jail. How did you get that, and what did the conversation reveal? Well, he didn't show for the interview, but he gave me a phone call, and I said to him, we're on the record, right? You should always assume you're on the record unless you say it first. And he said, no, you can report this. But he didn't show up for the sit-down interview at the last minute. But he did call me and apologize. He gave me a statement. Book Richardson was caught. We had the videotape, undercover FBI videotape of him taking a cash envelope, the assistant coach at the University of Arizona, for $15,000. He thought the guy was a street agent, but he was an FBI agent. He was trying to steer some U of A star players to go to this particular fledgling sports agent. So that's what the money was for. And then he took another bribe that was not caught on video, but there were hours of audio from wiretap phone calls. And I had them in my piece and I had the video. That was the first shot in the piece of the guy giving him the 15,000. Book ended up going to prison. He texted me a couple days before it. He went to prison for uh, three months. He had a $250,000 job. So a lot of people are wondering, well, why does he need a $15,000 bribe? He didn't show up for the interview after prison. I didn't want to hound him, but I waited a week. I said, okay, you're out now. Tell me when you want to do the interview. And he didn't come back to Tucson. He was on the East Coast where he grew up somewhere in New York. And he just never did the interview, but he gave me some good stuff over the phone. We were the first station in Tucson, I know, to have that video of him actually taking the cash envelope, which was the focal point of his trial, you know. Mm -hmm. He did a plea deal, otherwise he would have spent a lot more than three months in prison. He didn't have a prior record, but he's going to have a tough time, you would think, getting a decent coaching job now, for sure. No question. Last question, Matt. One of your all-time favorite quotes came from former NFL head football coach Bill Parcells. 
You are what your record says you are. What's your lifetime record? Isn't that a great quote? It's like you can't argue statistics. And I think you are what your record says you are. Is just a great line. Bill Parcells coincidentally graduated the same high school in New Jersey, Riverdale, that I graduated from, and I knew his younger siblings. I think I have a pretty good record. I made some mistakes. I talk about it in the book. I had some personal failings, a divorce that was my fault. That's in the book. But I think I tried to help people and do the right thing. And as I said in my retirement email to my staff at KVOA last week, I've been helping strangers for 44 years. Now it's time to help myself. Very well put. He is Matthew Schwartz, an award-winning investigative reporter who retired last week, who has spent four decades breaking stories on TV stations across the country, and he's just published a book on his life in the business, Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. Matthew, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thank you so much for having me. You asked some great questions, Trey.